as, um, as they're headed out and we prepare for this, I want to just, before I kind of launch into this, I want to bring a few things to your attention. Um, one is, uh, we, you might not know, at the church, we have a functioning prayer team, um, and uh, they just want to pray for you. And I believe God has given them a special spiritual gift of interceding for others. And so for many of the kind of how we will end the service weekly, um, they'll be kind of just scattered around the back. If you want to pray with someone, I encourage you to go find them. Um, and if some random stranger is just standing in the back and you assume they're on the prayer team, um, that'll be a way to, you know, just ask them to pray with you and you'll know very quickly um, if that's what they're there for or not. Um, The two commands to the church in the New Testament more than anything else is to pray and to sing. Those, those, that, that's what the Apostle, Apostle Paul and most all of his writings, those are the two things he tells the church, that we would be a people of prayer and that we would be a people of singing. And um, I pray as a church that we can take some steps in that direction I also, uh, last week I was out, and I was in Philadelphia visiting the Block Church. That's a church that we helped plant. They are five years old, and um, uh, I've never felt older in my life. Uh, They were a church of about a 1,000 people uh, in about four different locations, all under the age of 25, it seems. Um, The music was really loud. I was the grumpy old guy, you know. Um, They are doing an incredible work in Philadelphia. And if you've ever been there, it's a very lost and broken city, as most of the large cities in our country are. And uh, these bunch of millennials are just serious about loving God and serving Jesus, and they are there doing a great work. So I want to extend a thank you from their pastor, Joey Frejanic, uh to you. He told, asked me to tell you thank you. We supported him the first three years of their ministry, still do in some, in some ways. Um, and one other thing, just quickly to bring your attention, is that Covenant Church, Shreveport, Covenant Shreveport needs your help. They are launching a church. They go week to week on the 1st of October. And um, <clears throat> you'll probably never know, uh, it is so difficult to start a new church. Um, you come with no one, really. Um, you're kind of doing this new thing. Um, all the forces of evil seem to be against you at every turn. Um, and so they've asked us if you could volunteer one Sunday a month to go over there and help watch the kids in the nursery. Um, so there's a sign-up genius. We're only asking you to do one time through the end of this year. So if you feel like that might be something that you'd be willing to do, if you just write that on your connection card, and I'll follow up you this week. We'll send you an email. There's a sign-up where you can kind of, so by writing on the card, you're not committing to anything yet. Just, hey, Luke, I'd like to help if it works out. And if that, uh, if that does work out, and I hope it does, will be a big blessing to them. James chapter 1. We've been talking about a different, uh, I just wasn't really sure where we were headed after uh, we finished um, Exodus and we had another small series in there. We talked about the church and what the church is. And we were headed to the pastoral epistles, but I just kind of just kept getting feeling the Holy Spirit said, no, not there, not there, so maybe we'll get to that maybe this next summer. And my soul just found so much um, 
comfort maybe in James. Uh, James is often referred to as the Proverbs of the New Testament. You'll see as you get in it, um, he speaks very directly. So let's start there in James chapter 1 and verse 1. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, greetings. The writer, of course, as this would be read on a scroll, right? This would be read on a scroll. The writers of these letters often put their name first so you could know who they were coming for before you got to the very end of the scroll. You would know right up front, this is who it is, James. He's the half-brother of Jesus, and he's the uh, leader of the largest, most notoriable church of the first century. Just a little bit about him and a little bit about the audience before we actually dive into the text. James had four other uh, brothers, half-brothers, Mark chapter 6 tells us, all sons of Mary. And then he says here that he's a bondservant of God. If you read much of the New Testament, you'll know that James didn't always think like that. Matthew tells us that James didn't even believe in Jesus at first. And who would blame him? What would you think if one of your siblings claimed to be the Messiah of the world, right? Might be a little hard pill to swallow. You think about Joseph and his many dreams um, and how irritating that was to his brothers. Now think of Jesus, the Messiah himself, saying that he's um, the promised one. It'd be hard to get over. So James and many of the other family members did not believe him. However, 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus actually made a personal visit with James after his resurrection in that, in that period of time that's known as the Eastertide. Of course, we don't know all that was said, but shortly after that conversation, James becomes a leader in the church. As a matter of fact, by, you get, by the time you get to Acts 15, he is the leader overseeing like uh, the first church council meeting of many churches together. And here in this passage, he leads not with his biological relationship to Jesus, although that might be pretty interesting, the stories he might tell, but with his spiritual relationship to Jesus Christ, he says, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. So this is James. His audience is the 12 tribes dispersed abroad. He's writing to little pockets of churches in the first century that are tucked away in homes, a lot of them pushed out of the city. Remember, Christianity was not an accepted religion. That's why Jesus himself was crucified. And then the persecution only got worse and worse and worse. It was a practice of Nero, who uh, shortly after the death of Jesus became uh, the most powerful person in, uh, in Rome, had the practice of impaling Christians on poles and lighting them on fire so that they would be able to see his garden parties at nights. They would put Christians in um, uh, the gladiator games in the Colosseum there, and while people you know, watched in eights, Christians would be uh, being killed. So it's safe to say that persecution was a real thing that they struggled with. And because of that, they were forced out, right, out of the main of the city. And most of these churches were meeting in some sort of hiding. These people are going through difficult times without with the persecution, and many aren't responding well, but they're also going on struggling with some persecution within, not only just within the church, but within their own hearts. We find as we read through that these, this church is materialistic and self-righteous and self-interested and prideful. 
Good thing they're nothing like us today, right? And you will notice that James, again, one of the things I love about him, he didn't waste any time getting to the point. You met uh, Ross earlier. Ross was leading, uh, helping lead worship for us, and Ross has been a friend of mine for uh, a long time, since probably I was 17 or 18. The first taste of Christian community I had was in an apartment I lived in with Ross and Aaron and a few others, and it was the first time that I understood Ross's uh, uncanny ability just to speak the truth, and no matter what situation. Ross is also a professional counselor. If you sit under some of his uh, counseling, you know that to be true of him, right, to speak directly. And I love that of people. I love, you know, you know we can chit-chat if you want to, but let's just get down to the, the issue here, and here's what it is. Just let anybody appreciate, appreciate that about people. No fluff. Let's get to the point. This is definitely what James, and I just want to prepare you. Like, the things that we're going to read and talk about in James, don't get mad at me, okay? This is James, inspired by the Holy Spirit. This is James that is speaking these things to you. And we're going to look at the themes of the book of James. So we're not going to go line by line like sometimes we do through Scripture. We're going to look at the themes. And James covers about five themes, and we're going to spend a couple weeks on each of these. And they're all represented in chapter 1, and I'm going to give you just a quick purview of them. In verse 2, he talks about how we deal with suffering and difficulty, that we should think of it as joy. These people are really suffering for their faith. As a matter of fact, these early believers are so weighted under their circumstances that many just wanted to die. They just wanted to give up. Can you relate to this feeling at all? Then in verse 5, he talks about wisdom, that we should ask for wisdom, that it takes a measure of wisdom to endure difficulty with joy. And a few other places in the scripture talks about this idea of wisdom. In verse 9, it talks about wealth and discrimination within the church. He's writing to a group that there's no real middle class, and so there's really rich people, and then there's really poor people. And now these people are in the same church. So these really poor people are working 18-hour days just to make ends meet, and these really rich people, some of them don't even have to work. And so when they're having church services, they do it in the middle of the day, and the people who are working can't come, and it becomes this big fiasco, so much so that Paul writes a letter uh, to the church at Corinth about this same kind of thing, and really kind of focuses in on um, their discrimination. We can talk some about that. Verse 19 talks, uh, mentions how you control your tongue, also most of chapter 2, a few other places. Of course, we don't need to talk about that at all. There's no such thing as gossip or slander in our church or grumbling or complaining. We don't have any problem with that, correct? We'll talk about that. And then verse 26, he talks about the relationship between faith and works. And I think this might be the real theme here throughout all of it. The overarching theme is this idea of faith that works. We're not talking about a fake faith or faith that has to, you know, pose as something else. What he is saying is genuine faith looks like this. This is how genuine faith looks like in suffering. This is how genuine faith looks like uh, uh, in the way we use our words and the way that we use our tongue. This is how uh, genuine faith it looks like when it comes to wealth or discrimination or wisdom and on and on we could go. Let's look at verse 2. Consider it all joy, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect results so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. 
But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But he must, must ask in faith without any doubting. For the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect anything. Expect that he will receive anything from the Lord, being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Pray with me, please. Father, I pray that your word would penetrate our hearts as it's planted there, that it would produce fruitfulness in us. Holy Spirit, would you bring hope and conviction and encouragement? Lead us into truth even this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. You might ask Solomon how you endure through hardships, and he might quote to you Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, right? Or you might look to the Old Testament for an example of how you handle hardship, and you would have Joshua, the warrior, drawing a line in the sand and making this declaration today, right? For me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. Now you choose this day whom you will serve. But James is not a poet nor a warrior. He's a pastor. And he talks like a pastor. Now, as a preacher, I have to wear different hats from time to time. The hat of a counselor or cheerleader or encourager. Sometimes that of a teacher or an evangelist. Or even sometimes that of a prophet. Speaking hard truths to people. But those of you who really know me, know my heart. It's the heart of a pastor. And ultimately, this is the lens that I want us to look at this book through. James was certainly a pastor and had a pastor's heart. So if you can imagine him as he writes this letter and it was going to be passed through and dispersed through all of these little house churches, living in caves and in secret houses in the Judean countryside, it's the heart of a pastor trying to encourage and warn his flock. We'll start in chapter, in chapter 1, verse 2, the scripture we just read. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. Let's be honest, no one likes that verse. No one that I've ever met likes that verse. It's so easy for life to overwhelm you, is it not? It's so easy to get distracted by all the noise and busyness of life in general. It's so normal to get overburdened with just the heaviness and brokenness and pain all around us. It seems to be coming in waves from every side. Not to mention all the pain that's caused to you by people you love and people who betray you and friends who leave or say things that hurt, friends who just move out of town, people who are literally against you. And if you aren't careful, and if I'm not careful, we might just walk away from the faith altogether, throw in the towel and say, I just can't handle this anymore. And for that reason, James says that perseverance, above all other human traits, is the characteristic that God is trying to build into your life. Can it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, or maybe your version says perseverance. Anything worth having in this life takes perseverance. It takes steadfastness. God is trying to develop that in you and in me. So he walks us through these various trials in order to build that into us so that we may be prepared and complete for, for what's next. 
It's easy to start the race, is it not? It's what happens when you hit the wall. Anyone can walk down an aisle and get married, but it takes steadfastness and perseverance to love and serve that person for the rest of your life. Many can have a child or adopt a child, but to ring yourself out serving and loving that little kid and pointing them to Jesus over and over, that takes such perseverance. Jesus talked about this so much when he talked about what it means to follow him, of putting all your weight onto the one-handed plow and not looking back. Now James, in his practical pastoral counsel, gives us three principles that we must do in order to handle difficulty. It's in the imperative, just like it is in the English. Count it all joy, my brothers. This whole passage, this is James saying, listen, I'm going to give you. I'm aware that some of you are walking through the heaviest seasons of your lives right now. And it would kill me if this message was received as some kind of trite, simple formula to get you out of trials. That's not what this is. This is God riding through his servant James, helping to assure the walls of our soul to strengthen our faith so that when we do walk through difficulty, and we will, church, we will be able to walk through it with joy. So you're walking through a dark season, a difficulty, a trial on some level. What are we supposed to do? The first principle you find there in verse 2, that we're to count it all joy or think of it as a joy because of what it's producing. Think of it as joy because of what it's producing. Again, this is not a mind trick that we're just walking through some extreme difficulty and we're just trying to sing ourselves to tell ourselves that this doesn't hurt, it doesn't hurt, it doesn't hurt. We know that it hurts. And sometimes it hurts so deeply that we can't express how bad it hurts. And some of the grief that we experience is so deep that we don't have words to articulate the depths of that grief. So James is not saying, hey, what I want you to do is just forget about all the pain and put a smile on your face and think of it as joy. That is absolutely not what he's doing. Maybe we should start with this question. We should ask, what is joy? Because joy, the biblical definition of joy, is not some giddy bliss. It's not a four-year-old, right, opening a presence on her birthday. My Ellie Joyce had her 10th birthday, and it was, we've celebrated all week. We're still celebrating, right? She had it on Tuesday. And we've been, you know, giving her little gifts here and there, and just the joy, even as a 10-year-old. Open, man, just the joy as a 40-year-old. If you want to give me a gift, I will have such giddy bliss opening that gift that you give me. But that's not the biblical definition of joy, not a giddy bliss. No, it's a settled peace. That's what joy is. It's a settled peace. It's confidence that everything is under control. My kids ask over and over, when a bad storm comes, Dad, are we going to be okay? Or, if you know me, I have terrible directions. I get lost all the time. My kids get a little panic in their voice. Dad, where are you going? Hey, it's going to be okay. You don't, you don't have to worry. Dad, when are we going to be there? When are we going to get there? Hey, when we're there, I'm going to say, hey, we're here. Don't even ask again. It's just not even worth it, right? There's a settled peace about that of trust, confidence that everything is under control. It's Jesus sleeping on the bottom of the boat and it's almost sinking. And these seasoned sailors who've known many, 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 many storms know, that, hey, we're going under. We're not going to survive this one. Somebody better go wake the Savior. It'd be better if he's awake for his last day on the earth, right? 
And what does Jesus do? Speaks to the storm and then speaks to the disciples. You remember what he told the disciples? Oh, you of little faith. Jesus had that settled peace. After that, he probably just walked back down there and took his pella and just went right back to bed, right? Joy is a settled peace, a confidence that everything is under control, that our God is a good father. and He gives good gifts to his kids. And we can trust him no matter what we're walking through. Notice too here he says there that it's when you face, when you meet trials of various kinds, not if but when, we will face them right now. You're either walking through them just on the other side or maybe about to enter. It's just the way that life will be for, for a believer. It's just the way that life in this world works. We live in a broken, sinful world. It's not the way, not God's original design for it. Sin is what entered in and brought in so much brokenness here. The word face here means literally things that come up unexpectedly. It's the same word used in Acts when Paul's ship struck a sandbar and sank out of nowhere. We're just moving along and then the phone call comes. Or we get the email or we open the letter or we get a call from the school. They come unexpectedly. Trials here could be translated temptations if you've got one of the older translations it might say that but the context reveals it to literally mean difficulty think of it as all joy when you walk through difficulty we sang a new song today about the new wine I didn't know that was on the I just I liked how that just brought it up that we're supposed to sing and celebrate through the crushing and the pressing that's hard to do is it not have you ever tried tried that why Why, James? Why are we supposed to consider it all joy when we face these trials of many kinds? And the answer is because of what it's producing. The trial itself is not fun. And I don't want you to get that picture from here. But we can have joy in the midst, a settled peace, a confidence that God is still in control because of what it's producing. Like these ladies that get pregnant again and again. All the morning sickness and all the hormone changes and all the bloated feelings and then the pain of actually delivering the child and then they do it again. They get pregnant again. If men carried babies, it would be one and done. This is all all we could handle. Maybe you've got more pain tolerance than me. I call 911 when I get a headache. Hudson is six now, but I remember about two weeks after he was born, Ashley and I walking around Target and saw some maternity clothes and she just starts weeping. And I was like, you know, you know that feeling as a husband, like, what did I do? You know, what's, what's, what happened? Hey, babe. (laughs) He said, I just want to be pregnant again. I was like, again? Seriously? Do you remember? Can I tell you about just two weeks ago and all the pain and, and the no drugs and, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's serious. Um. We consider this all joy because of what it's producing in us. Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance or steadfastness. Again, the first song we started out today talked about singing through the pain, singing through the difficulty. Remember the picture in Acts 16 where Paul and Silas are in prison? Being beaten and what happens? They begin to sing. 
in the midst of the pain. Not because prison was fun. Because they knew God was in control and they had a settled peace even to sing in the midst of the storm. We can have joy because we know what the, what the testing of our faith is producing in us. It's producing endurance or perseverance. Again, it says here in verse 3 that God's testing your faith. Not to see if you're really a Christian or a Mormon. That's not what's going on here. Testing your faith Meaning walking you through the pain so that you can see of yourself what you really have your hope set in. What, what the weight is really on. You, you know these people, I like to watch these shows about Alaska and you know they can't cross over the frozen lakes until they test them. And so they, you know, they, they stomp a little bit and go a little further and just seeing if, the, seeing, seeing if it'll hold the weight. And this is in essence what testing does to, to our faith. It's, it's, it shows us what our faith is actually in. Is our faith just in our bank account? Well, what happens when you lose it all? Is your faith just in uh, comfort? Well, what happens when pain comes? Is your faith just in your friends? Well, what happens when, when they move or, or they leave or they get upset with you? Is your, is, is your faith just in your spouse? Well, what happens when they go through a season of discouragement or even depression or, or, or God forbid that they even leave? What, what happens to you? What is your faith actually in? And this is what James says, that the testing of our faith reveals to us. That's what it means in the testing. Faith is not some mental state where we keep telling ourselves that we believe we believe or that we squint really our eyes really hard and we try to press doubt from our lives. No, faith is taking the principles of God's word and applying them. Here's the definition I like to use with faith, faith definition. I think I have this on the screen. Faith is choosing to live as though God's word is true regardless of, of circumstances, emotions, or cultural trends. It's choosing to live as if God's word is true or truer than what I feel at the moment. That God's word is truer than the emotions that I'm currently feeling. Some guy cut me off in traffic and I just want to hurt them back. But God's word tells me, right, that I should use my words to bless and to encourage, not to tear down. So in that moment, I've got to make a choice. I've got to make a choice between my emotions and what God's word actually says. God's word is true or truer than the cultural trends. Listen, we live in the day already when it is not culturally even appropriate to stand on the truth of God's word. Our culture is redefining everything. And we are certainly in the minority and growing even more so. And so we've got to make this decision of where, where are we putting our weight? Is our weight in our emotions that changes every day? Is our weight in the cultural trends? We're actually going to let people in Hollywood or the politicians in D.C., they're going to decide what's true and not true. Or is it in our circumstances that we have no control over? And this is, what, this is what difficulty is doing. This is what the trials are doing. They're revealing to us what our faith is in. Where we're actually putting our weight. So then losing my faith is not when I just stop believing. No, losing one's faith is when they quit applying the principles of God's word because of some other force. External or internal. So finances get tight and we quit tithing. We let our circumstances define what's true and not true. Or someone that works rude to me and I feel it's justified to lash out back at them and hurt them in return because of my feelings. Or my wife offends me and I feel the right to offend her back. My wife isn't intimate with me as frequently as I had hoped and so I justify the use of going online late at night and clicking on things. 
Faith, choosing to live as though God's word is true, regardless of circumstances, emotions, or cultural trends. Now, let's not be so pious in here and act like that this is not true for us, that there's not been moments even this week where we had to make that decision of faith. Am I trusting in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit? Am I trusting in the wisdom of God as revealed through the word of God? Or am I trusting in my own emotions, circumstances, or cultural trends? I heard some bad news this week. Sent me into a downward spiral of worry and anxiety, and I am in the middle of just fighting it out in my mind. I'm sitting on the couch staring into the, <laughs> you know, into the abyss, looking at the living room wall, and my wife's like, can I help you? Do I need to call Jason? That's exactly what she asked me. Babe, I'm going to be okay. I'm, I'm in that moment. I'm fighting. You, you know what it's talking about where you're trying to fight and you're trying to take what's true and, and what's the lie that the enemy is sowing in and you're trying to somehow distinguish between the two so that we can reject the lie and we can embrace the truth. And that's a real battle that happens. And I'm in the middle of that and I'm tempted just to get caught up in my anxiety. Even though I know God's word says be anxious for nothing. That's what the word says. So where am I, where's my weight? Where's my faith at that moment? What happened in that moment isn't that I lost salvation. No, in that moment, I lost my faith because I totally rebelled against the principles of God's word because of how I felt at the moment. I chose not to apply God's word in that moment. And we live in a world of sin. And there's sin all around us. And we feel the effect of that sin all around us. We feel it in our bodies. We feel it in other people. We have to wrestle with this idea of truth again and again. And here's where I think the American church misses the point. Scripture says that we all struggle from one degree or another. We struggle but we tend to ignore our struggle. We come in, we put on the pretty face, we shake hands, call each other brother and sister, which is kind of weird, you know, even that, you know. And we just act like we don't struggle. Like, oh man, life's just, you know, just roses out there. But in doing so, we do it so much that we don't receive any ministry or help or prayer. And the outsider thinks that Christianity is only for people who have it all together, so they won't even be accepted here. But if we viewed everyone as pushing around a wheelbarrow of baggage, of hurt and struggle and wrestling with sin, we might begin to see people for who they really are and not who they're pretending to be, and we might start showing and receiving grace on a more regular basis. Listen, church, if your life is like my life is, you ought to fill out that prayer request form every, every Sunday. And you just write until your pen runs out of ink. Because we need prayer. We need people coming alongside us and interceding with us and praying against the enemy as he comes in to deceive and to destroy. Here's the encouragement here. That God is so sovereign and in control not that he calls the trial in your life. No, it would say later in James that every good gift that comes into our life is from God. Now, God might, uh, might cause some difficulty, but most of the difficulty that we experience is because we lived in this sinful world. And God, so sovereign and in control, has the ability to take that trial that we're walking through and make it spiritually profitable for us. Isn't that amazing? 
We can't control the trial that we walk in any more than we can control the weather. Nor can we forecast what the next trial will be that we'll walk through. But we can be confident in this. We can have a settled peace in this. That God is holding our hand and he doesn't waste one ounce of pain. He doesn't neglect one tear. Our good father in his infinite and loving wisdom uses this trial to mold us into the image that he has in mind for us. So one of the functions of the difficulty that you're walking through, whether you have realized it or not, is God is molding you into the image of his son Jesus. And he's producing in you something that you couldn't produce by all the willpower in the world. He's producing steadfastness or perseverance in you. Again in verse 3 it says, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. If we lose faith during the trial, not only do we prolong the development of becoming the person God is molding us into, but we're also not ready for the next trial. So as you're thinking about the trial you're going through, you should almost sit back and smile knowing that God is preparing you in this trial for the trials that he knows are coming in your life in the future. Isn't God good that he does that? So think of it as joy because of what it's producing. And the second principle James gives us here is in verse 4. And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The second principle is this idea of enduring to the end. Endurance has a purpose. Keep on enduring until it's completed, James says. Don't squander this trial. If you mismanage this, you, again, you won't be prepared for the next one. Listen, God does not enjoy the difficulties we walk through. To quote one pastor, he's not some sadistic puppet master in heaven finding humor in the difficulty we walk through. No, not at all. That is not who God is. However, he does allow trials in our life to accomplish what he has in store for us. Do you see this? The point in verse 4, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Church, there are storehouses in the house of God that you will never access except through pain. Not because you don't, not because you don't have access to them, you just won't be driven to pray like that until the pain comes. You won't be driven to, to grasp and be desperate for it until the pain comes. It is only through walking through difficulty that we're able to enjoy God as we should, to love God as we should, to glorify God as we should. I read this quote this week. I think I have it on the screen. Faith does not flourish when it lies untested. It atrophies when it goes unexercised. And eventually it dies. So when God loves us with his saving love and gives us saving faith, he commits, because he cares for us, to inject our lives with various trials to train, grow, sweeten, strengthen, and mature what matters most in us. Our various trials, he says, in this life are not superfluous to our enduring faith, and they are not threats to losing our faith. They are one of God's essential means through which he, pers he preserves the faith he has given us and he keeps us as his own. Imagine what it would be like if your boss was a 10-year-old. For some, that might be fun. 
right? We just watching Nickelodeon all day. Is that even a thing? Is Nickelodeon still a thing? You go in the boss and, hey, hey, uh, you know, my paycheck, I didn't hit my bank account yesterday. What's the deal? And he'd be like, oh, really? Well, you know, what is, what's a paycheck? <laughs> I'm just over here eating my Fruity Pebbles during break time. I'm going to go play a little Nintendo Switch later. Maybe we can have donuts. You want to come over for donuts? Now, your boss used to be 10 years old at some time, but through life, he or she has grown up. They've matured. They've got this position because, uh, because they've, taken, they've taken some hits. They've uh, gone through college. They've been trained. They've matured. Does that make sense? And so now you can trust them to lead you. Hopefully most of us can trust them to lead, to, 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 to lead us because they've matured. And this is what James is saying. This is, this is what the pain or difficulty in our life does. It grows us up. It matures us. Let me ask you a question. Is there a part about God that you don't like? When you read scripture, is there a part of God's word that you seem just to, you just don't want to read that part. I just, I just want to skip over that. The Thomas Jefferson Bible, you know, that he's cut out all the difficult things in scripture. He cut and pasted all the things that weren't difficult that he liked and made his own Bible. Maybe it's loving other family members that are difficult to love. Maybe the parts in Scripture about sexual purity. Maybe it's that stuff about prayer and fasting. You know, that takes, that takes some effort. Let me suggest something. Maybe we don't like these things about God or we don't trust God in these areas because we fail to endure some trial in this area in the past. God was trying to show us some of our sin and some of his grace, but we didn't like the lesson and we ran from it. God was trying to teach us something through his loving kindness and we failed to endure it, so we really didn't grow up in that area. And since then, it's, been, it's made living with Jesus a little awkward because the picture in Revelation, he still stands at the door and knocks wanting to come into that place, and yet we don't want him in there because he's going to ask us, and we don't trust him in that area because we didn't endure something that he was trying to teach us in the past, but we ran from it instead. Here's the sermon in the sentence. If you cannot endure your trials, you won't enjoy your God. If you cannot endure your trials, you cannot enjoy your God. Enjoying God comes as you endure trials to the end. It comes as you are made perfect and complete, as you endure. Some of you, even this morning, are ready to give up. You're ready to give in, to throw in the towel, to allow temptation to overcome, to allow the trial to claim victory. It hurts and it's painful, and you don't want to stay in that place. But my encouragement to you, and certainly encouragement from James, is don't give up. God knows how to take this difficulty that you are walking through and use it to mold you into the person he's created you to be, but also to prepare you for the next trial that you're going to face. Again, Christianity is not a sprint. It's not even a marathon. It's something that we do for a lifetime. I heard Bob Goff say this this week on one of his podcasts. Christianity is not about the destination. It's about the direction. I love that. Not the destination, man, I want to hurry up and get there so that I can be there. No, it's just about walking with Jesus through life.
leads us to the third principle here, found in verse 5. The principle is that we should ask for wisdom and faith. Verse 5 reads, but if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. What is wisdom? Well, wisdom is the ability to apply the word of God to specific situations. Wisdom is the ability to apply the word of God to a specific situation. So we're dealing with anxiety, and this is, this is the spiritual fight that we do. And God's word says, uh, be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and, and supplication, let your request be made known unto God, right? That's what it says. So when we feel anxiety rising up in us, this is the fight that we engage in. It's applying the word of God to specific situations. Wisdom can only come on the other side of being a student of God's word. This is why we encourage you all the time and we have a scripture reading plan that you would, you would dig into the word and meditate on the word and memorize the word because the fights normally don't come when the word of God is open. That's why we've got to have it in our head and in our hearts. We've got to write it on a little card. We've got to text our, our, our little huddle or our missional community and say, I need prayer. This is what's going on. And, then, and even them, they can, they can fire some arrows of truth into, into our situation. This is what it says, you're walking through a trial and it's difficult and you don't know your way forward that you should consider it joy because of what it's it's actually producing. Don't give up and endure it to the end, but this is the key part. You've got to ask for wisdom and faith that God would give you the mindset to apply God's word in this current situation. Why should we ask God for wisdom? He gives us three reasons right, right here. First, that he gives it generously. God has oceans of wisdom and we need only a drop. And God gives us wisdom generously. He's not stingy watching us struggle through this life when he could give us the answers that we long to know. Here's the truth. This is the scary truth. And this might be too simple to even believe. Most of us don't have wisdom in the midst of difficulty because we don't ask for it. Because we immediately try to work our way out of it. And that's not bad that we try to find something that's less painful. I'm not saying that. It's saying that James says, you know what you need to do when it comes? You need to ask for wisdom. Most of us don't have wisdom because we simply don't ask for it. Matthew chapter 7 verse 9, Jesus talking, Or which one of you, if a son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more? Will your Father who is in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? He gives, us, he gives us wisdom generously, it says, and he gives it without reproach or without resentment. You ever got that family member that's always in need of money and yet they're not smart with their money? It's always some crisis. And you're like, you know, your brother-in-law comes and asks you for $5,000 and you're looking at his bass boat out there, and you're like, well, you know. But, you know, to keep peace in the family, and I've got 5000 in savings that we've scrapped together, I'm going to write him a check for the 5000 that he desperately says he needs. But every, every word you write on that check, what are you thinking? You're gritting your teeth, and you're saying, you sucker, I don't know what you're going to do with this money, right? You, you might give it, but you give it with resentment. But that's not what God does. He doesn't look at us, man, them little sick sinners down there. Last time I gave them a blessing, they just squandered it. No, it was always, it, 
He gives us wisdom generously without resentment. Your church, if we don't get this, your heavenly father loves you in such a way that you, that makes every love that you've ever loved just so small in comparison. He loves us with this. And think of the way you love your kids. We were in Philly for a couple days. And our six-year-old little Hudson, about 3 o'clock in the morning, the first night we got back, we got back late, like midnight. We had probably just gone to bed. It's 1 o'clock. You know, you're in, that, you're in that sleep where if someone wakes you up, like someone might get hurt, that kind of sleep, right? Little Hudson comes and gets in the bed. Well, I was not having it. So he came and got on mom's side of the bed. And mom just pulled the cover back and let him just get in and snuggle. And I was like, tell him to go back to his bed. And she was like, oh, it's fine. This is God accepting us, right? That he's just saying, hey, just come on in. He gives it to us without, without resentment. He wants to be with us. Our Father loves us to such a degree. We must understand that God does not love us without also liking us. He doesn't love us through gritted teeth, as Christian love is sometimes thought to do. Rather, out of the eternal freshness of his perpetually self-renewed being, the heavenly Father cherishes the earth and every one of us in it. And he tells us to come. The third reason that we should ask for this wisdom, I know I'm running out of time, that he will give it to us generously and without reproach. And then there's this promise that he will give it to us. It will be given to him. The only reason that I don't have wisdom while walking through this trial or difficulty is because I haven't asked. And I know, again, this sounds so simplistic. We've got to ask God for wisdom. Now, he does throw this little qualifier in there in verse 6 that we must ask in faith without doubting. Verse 6, but he must ask in faith without doubting for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. For that man ought not to expect what, that he will receive anything from the Lord, anything being wisdom, because he's a double-minded man and stable in all his ways. Here's what it means to doubt. That I'm really struggling with this sin or temptation and I'm choosing not to apply God's word in this situation. So the person who asks for wisdom without actually believing that God's going to give it and without actually trusting that God's good, what he's literally saying is, God, you're one of my many options. So I'm going to ask you for wisdom, but I'm also asking Oprah for wisdom, and I'm also going to read the best self-help book. And whichever just kind of feels right, that's the one I'm going to go with. And this is what James says, no, that person doesn't get wisdom. The person that gets wisdom is the one who asks confidently and with faith. Knowing that what God says is what's going to be best for us, whether we like what he says or not. Psalms 119 says, I have stored up. It's so hard for me to read scripture that I memorized in the King James. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee, the King James. The newer translation, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. We read that and faith would say that we need to hide God's word in our heart that we would not sin against him. Again, faith is not squinting our eyes and hoping. It's saturating ourselves with God's word. 
so that it acts as a barrier for sin. Through discipline, I turn off the TV or I fast from Facebook and I consume the word of God and I know my life and soul depends on it and so I eat it and I consume it and I memorize it, I meditate it and I talk about it in the morning and talk about it in the evening and I, and I come up with practical ways that I can actually learn God's word. I love that they're teaching our little kids God's word during the equipping hour. They're, they're right now learning a, a scripture from every book of the Bible. We reviewed them in my house this week and it was so precious to me to hear these little, my little kids just kind of spouting off and getting most of it kind of wrong and mixing some verses together but they're making this attempt right to hide God's word in their hearts and this is what a person of faith does Psalms 119 says that we've stored up God's word so that we wouldn't sin against him and faith is us actually doing that doing whatever we need to do to turn off the things that bring distraction so that we can consume the word of God and have it in us and then we can practice it with wisdom applying it to the situations that we walk into for example, many would say, but you know, I don't want to do that. That's going to take work, Luke, and I don't have time for that, and I can't memorize, and I, I hate to read. Can you just like drum up some Netflix special that'll get me there? So you know what? I'm not actually going to fight against that sin. I'm just going to let it be. And in that moment, we've rejected our faith. Again, it doesn't mean we've lost our salvation. I'm not saying that. It just means you can't expect wisdom from God in that moment. Because you've predetermined in your heart that you don't want to follow what he's asking you to do. And with no wisdom, you won't get endurance. And without wisdom, you won't have joy. Joy will be impossible as you walk through difficulty. I'm going to wrap this up simply. Again, we can't control the storm that we're in or the storm that's coming any more than we can control the weather next week. You just can't do it and you aren't supposed to. And as much as I would like to be able to know what my next trial that God is preparing for me now, I just don't know what it is, so I just have to trust him. I'm going to ask the band to come up. Faith is the stabilizing force in our life that helps us weather any storm with joy. This settled peace and confidence. And I'm going to close a little differently today. I want to walk you through a little practice, really, of two things. The presence of faith and hope in the human heart can change any situation. And this morning, I always want you to be honest with yourself and with God about the season you're walking through. So you can close your Bibles if you have them. And I just want you to talk to God right now. Keep your connection guide handy. I want you to be able to write some of these things down if you feel so bold. I want us to have a time of just naming what we're walking through. Again, this week I was having a tough week and I just called a friend and I just told him, you know what, I just, I'm just really lonely. I don't know why. I'm not by myself. I just feel so lonely. I've got this empty feeling. And it just helps so much just to name it. So I want you to have a little time of honest confession with yourself and with God about the season that you're walking through. If you're bold enough, I'd ask you to write them down so that you can see God start to work through them. But what are the emotions that you're feeling? What are the doubts that persist? Just write them down. 
What about the angst of just living in this time and place? Maybe it's the disappointment you feel because God didn't do what you thought he was going to do. Maybe it's some things that came up when you went through college. It's people that have hurt you in the past and you just can't seem to love again because of that. I just want you to write that down in this moment of honest confession. And you're not going to turn it into me. This is just for you. But sometimes it helps if we just name it. We just, we just bring that thing into the light. I just feel desperate. I feel hopeless. I feel just tired and weary. Maybe some of you are just super encouraged today. Write that down. That's a, that's a great season to be in. maybe you would ask this question where where is God at work in the midst of this maybe he didn't seem anywhere present would you just invite him into the midst of it right now into the hurt into the pain into the middle of your doubts listen God can handle your doubts I love that scene on the mount of uh, of ascension and Jesus is literally floating up to heaven in front of them and it says that the group is worshiping and then it said, but some are doubting. Even in the midst of that majestic thing, there's people like, well, I just don't even know if it's real. God knows that we are finite. He knows that we struggle and wrestle. It's no surprise to him. Maybe you would just name them. Your questions, your grief. God's word literally says that we would cast our anxieties on him. So just invite the Holy Spirit to come be right in the midst of the pain and grief and doubt or whatever season that you're walking through. Ask him that he would remove the lies that you've held on to, some of you, for years and years. You had a, a lie of the enemy spoken to you or over you when you were in elementary school and you just can't let it go. Ask the Holy Spirit would just reveal that even now, what that is. You would expose the lie and you'd replace it with the truth. It's the Holy Spirit that he'd begin to remove some of the doubt and he would bring in and swell up in your heart faith. Maybe you've been hurt so deeply just recently and the hurt, the wound is still fresh and you just need healing in your heart and you would just invite the Holy Spirit to bring healing. So name it and invite the Holy Spirit to show up. And then I want you to ask God for wisdom. Knowing that he loves us perfectly and he's trying to do this work in us. He's going to give us what we need to endure it well. Sometimes we just need the wisdom. We need the perspective. Would you ask God that he would just give you wisdom in the midst of this right now? you continue to pray I want to read 1 Peter 1 over you it's a very similar passage it's just such a beautiful passage you continue praying I'm going to ask that the prayer team actually start making their way to the back we're going to sing here in a minute if you need to pray with someone please go find them that is, that is not an embarrassing thing for you to get up and go and pray with someone, ask them to pray for you as you walk through, that you would have wisdom, that you would endure it, that you want to quit, but that you would stay there and you would endure it, that you would find healing. 
First Peter, Peter prays. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ and to the dead, from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation that's already been revealed in the last time. In this, rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the sight of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Father, we need that joy. Inexpressible and full of glory. I pray for us that we would be honest about struggle and wrestling and doubts, that we wouldn't walk through deserts alone, or that we would be willing to admit our weakness, and in that very moment that your grace just floods into our lives. And the song that comes from our heart would be the anthem of hope, this living hope that Peter prays for us. We've been born again to a living hope with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Let it be true in our hearts and our lives. As we lift our voices to you here in a minute, I pray, Father, that your grace would surround us in a way that maybe we haven't experienced in a very long time. You would lead us to truth. My prayer is that as people pray and communicate with you and join up with a prayer team partner in the back, Lord, that you would begin to break addictions, to bring freedom, to bring salvation even today for those who have not placed their trust in you. It's in your mighty name that we pray, amen. I'll be in the back if you'd like to pray with someone with the rest of the prayer team.